Welcome back to From the Ground Up with Mark Weller. I'm your host, Matt Rienzo, alongside Mark Weller. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Matt. Well, we're both pumped about today's guest. He's a dear friend of yours, I know, and mine as well. A world-class talent in design. He's an inspiration and a great guy. Uh, Mark, you excited to have Patrick Sutton on today? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're lucky to have him. We're, we're quite frankly, uh, lucky to have him in Baltimore. We're lucky to have him participate in all the projects that he's done in the region. And I think he, uh, he makes everything he touches uh, better. All right. Well, let's do it. Um, let's bring Patrick on. Patrick, welcome. Thank you, guys. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. And uh, you look very relaxed and ready to go. Yeah, it's all it's all smoke and mirrors, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we couldn't be more thrilled to have you on. We have a lot to talk about. Um, Mark, you want to kick us off? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't even know where to start with Patrick. Uh, I, you know, I've I've told him this many times. Uh, you know, whether it's six o'clock in the morning when I call him to talk to him about something, or eight o'clock at night after a couple beers or whatever. But I admire him so much and his talent, and I'm so appreciative that I was I was fortunate enough to get introduced to him years ago. Um, and, and quite frankly, he's, uh, changed the trajectory of my career. I always had, uh, design, um, at, at the forefront of everything I did, uh, coming from DC up to Baltimore in 2011 or so, but I never really had it at the level that I did, um, with the, with the process that came with it, uh, until I met Patrick. He and formalized then, that for you a little bit. I yeah. would say that he did. He did. And in addition to that, um, I was given the palette. Um, I was really fortunate as I've talked about before and given the palette of these most amazing projects, I think, uh, that, that, that you could ever be ever work on, including uh, the Sagamore Pendry Hotel and the uh, Sagamore Spirit Distillery and, and several other projects as well. And those were incredible palettes. And then given an incredible talent like Patrick, I was able to really turn something that was going to be really excellent and really great into I would absolutely describe as world-class and I give Patrick uh, a huge amount of the credit for that because he took it to another level. That's amazing. And, uh, and so as you think about that, Patrick, how, how did you get into this to where you uh, developed that skill set? and just tell us about your roots and, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So, so it's interesting when you sort of reflect on how you arrived at your career, right? So, um, mine started at an early age. My dad was a fairly prolific travel journalist and he started, um, when he came back from World War II, he wanted to write and, and he knocked on the door of the New York Post, which was the big paper then, it wasn't the Times. Real quick, where was he in World War II that, that inspired him? Uh, so he was all throughout France okay, uh, and Europe. So, um, and he was in counterintelligence. Um, wow. So he came back and he... Uh, he, you know, wanted to take a job. He, he wanted to be a writer. So, so he would have taken any journalistic job there was. And with transatlantic travel having opened up because of, you know, the war, um, they had one drop opening and that was travel journalism, which really wasn't a thing per se until then. And so um, really what happened is he became one of the pioneers of transatlantic travel. So as a boy, um, we would travel all over the world to the world's most beautiful and storied locations. Wow. And so that, that kind of, you know, as a child, you just sort of, sort of taking all this information in. But the other thing that I was, I learned from him was that, you know, his job was to go out and um, transport his readers to wherever we were. So he was looking for the story that was behind all these places. What's the energy of these locations that make it feel unique to its place. And then he would transport his readers to those places. He was very adept at it. 
Um, so, you know, that just sort of stuck with me. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't think about this thing. So you, you start asking yourself questions like, how did I end up doing this stuff? Right. So fast forward till I was about 16 years old and, um, you know, I was an awkward, um, teenager. Um, there was some stuff at home. Like maybe we can talk about later. That was great, uh, in my life. Um, so I was really insecure. Um, and I started taking, you know, you had two elective options when you were at 16 and, and I was, I grew up in, uh, Westchester, New York. Uh, one was home economics and the other was architectural drafting, right? So like very leave it to uh, Cleaver kind of thing. Um, and I, I think that's Beaver, but yeah, Beaver, Beaver, whatever, whatever. leave it to Beaver. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, got it. Same thing. Um, so, uh, so I took architectural drafting and, um, you know, my teacher saw that I had the ability to see things three-dimensionally in my mind. And like all good teachers, he encouraged me, right? So, and if you're an awkward kid with low self-esteem. This is like sophomore, junior year, somewhere around that. So I was, yeah, 16. So I would have, yeah, uh, yeah I would have been a sophomore. Yeah. So um, he's like, you know, uh, you should really explore this. Uh, I don't see this often that people have the ability to visualize things three-dimensionally in their mind. There is a summer course at Harvard called Career Discovery uh, in Architecture. You might consider it. So I brought this news home to my father. Um, and at the time, you know, uh, my, my household wasn't great, right? Like, so it was storied in the way that, that we had this incredible travel, you know, part of our life. And we would go literally fly first class to the most amazing resorts. So it was literally treated like royalty. But at the same time at home, my mother started showing signs of erratic behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out um, after childbirth, um, she st- uh, exhibited signs of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So as a boy, you know, you sort of, um, that's a dark secret in the 1970s when I was around. You, know, you didn't talk Absolutely. about that. So um, with that at home, my father thought summer get Patrick out of the house for a summer at architecture school. What a great idea. Mm-hmm. So I went to, I went to that program and um, I just dived into it and literally the design solutions were flying out of my pen and I was completely hooked. And you know, you sort That's of think, so cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you think, all right, well, you know, gosh, I've got talent. Well, actually, no, it wasn't that it was that I had been given this gift as a child to, to have this incredible um, vast and vivid memory of the world's most beautiful places. So every design problem that was given to me, I had already seen the solution. It was just imprinted in my mind. And so I, so I, I, I parlayed that to uh, the architectural program at Carnegie Mellon University. Same thing. You know, these teachers are a godsend. They, they see a gift and they really, they feed it. And that sort of got me out of a kind of a dark place at home. And I used... Um, the, the leverage of my creativity to, to sort of fuel my you know, personal feeling of self-worth. Wow. That's amazing, Patrick, and uh, inspirational and also incredible. And it reminds us how important it is to be encouraging of young folks who are trying to find their way. Totally. And I think, you know, whether it's your own children or somebody else's children you're mentoring or friends of friends' kids, I think anytime you can provide opportunity to open up that door and say, hey, it's okay to go down that road and it's okay to, to try something new, I think you're a great example of, uh, of, of what you can end up doing. Yeah, for sure. 
Can you take us through, you know, from that point on, you know, the early stages of your career? Like, where did you work before you started your own company and you're doing your own thing and you're writing books and all that other stuff? Like, <laughs> what was your early career like? So I did really well in college, um, which is interesting because I did horribly. You Where'd know, you go to college? Carnegie Mellon okay. University Architectural Program there, uh, which was amazing. I had some just incredible, inspirational uh, professors. Um, I got a lot of offers to come out to, to work different places out of college. My father was a grand personality in New York City. So I didn't want to go there because I would have been kind of under his thumb, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of wanted to make my own way. So um, one of the firms uh, offering me or pitching me uh, for, I thought maybe I'll I would go to Washington, D.C. So I went to Washington, interviewed with a couple of firms there. One firm was called RTKL. And I just didn't love Washington at the time. This was 1985. Uh, it just felt like it didn't have a soul. And I'd come from Pittsburgh, you know, school in Pittsburgh. Very much before the Renaissance that, that's taken place through the late 90s into right. the 2000s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It felt transient. So the firm, and, Car and Carnegie Mellon is such a um, inspirational place with people with all sorts of talents and very unique. So it, it is, to, you know, kind of more transient DC. I could see that. Well, and then too, I think you know, I sort of you know, uh, living in Pittsburgh while I was in school there. You know, that's a that's a city of neighborhoods. It's just like a real organically grown city. Right. So th this firm was all, said, well, you know, if you don't like Washington, we, we our headquarters are up the the road in Baltimore. Why don't we give it a shot? So I, I, I came to Baltimore and I'm like, hmm, this town looks familiar to me. Mm -hmm. I like it. So I'll give it a year. And that was 1985. Wow. <laughs> Still here. What neighborhood did you move into in 1985? Phil's Point. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. You've made it so far. <laughs> <laughs> I moved down the street. <laughs> You're like 100 yards from where you started. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, about six blocks. But yeah, so that's uh, so I started doing architecture. Um and, you know, RTL is a large corporate firm. I learned pretty quickly, like nine months, that I'm not a corporate guy. Um, I just, I have uh, too many opinions too, and too much sort of creative juices to sort of fall in line to a structure. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 that wasn't going to work for me. And I got offered a job at a small residential architectural firm. In How long did you say they took you to figure that out? Nine months. <laughs> nine months. <laughs> got it. So, um, patience, patience wasn't a virtue <laughs> for me. <laughs> so yeah, so I started working for the small residential practice in Columbia, Maryland, uh, which is where we are right now. And, um, after three years there, I actually became a partner in the firm. Um, how they, old were you? 24. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, so we were doing this stuff and, um, you know, it was great cause that was given free reign and what was happening is that I was, I was working on these projects and they were being handed off to other interior designers. And it just was like tearing my heart out of my chest because the way I was, I was sort of taught to see was to craft the whole experience, not just the edifice, not just the building, but what is, you know, where most architects would walk the site and look and it's like, where is this building going to make its greatest expression on the landscape? I was thinking like, what are the dinner parties going to be like? Like who's invited? What are the table linens? You know, I just saw the whole story in my head. And, I, and so I, I started becoming a little disillusioned with my industry. So I started doing interior design as an adjunct to the architecture as well. And for the first time, I actually felt like I was, you know, complete. I was crafting the whole experience. And, you know, you reflect back on it and, and you say, like, where did that come from? 
Well, what it came from was traveling the world and experiencing it with my father while he looked for the story. Like, what is it about these places that are so unique? What is it about them? Um, and I, I, you know, I didn't know I was doing it then, but, you know, reflecting on it and then writing a book, you're like, oh yeah, that's right. That's why I do this stuff. Um, so started doing architecture and interiors. And then ultimately the uh, architecture part just atrophied and I just focused on the interiors. Yeah. And you actually answered the question I was going to ask, but I want to ask it anyway to see what else you have to say. And that's when I first met you seven years ago, you know, I, I, I understood you through the lens, which you just described architecture and, and interior design. And then over the years working together, obviously it's become evident to me that you're much more than that. Um, there's a lot of storytelling in there as you've described your background there and your father's background. It's so interesting. So how do you characterize yourself uh, as a, as a professional? Is there, can you be in a box or are you really, you know, is it interior design is your, you know, but you've got elements of brand and storytelling and architecture and interior design. Oh, you know, it probably at the core, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. You know, um, I just, I think that following a little bit on my father's footsteps, I'm, I'm always digging to find out what the story is there. Like what, what are we trying to say? We, we've worked on this, you know, Mark and I, um, you know, when we, when we were doing the Sagamore Pendry, for example, mm -hmm. and what was so interesting about that project is that the Pendry brand was know thyself, right? That was one of their tags. And so wherein like a four seasons kind of creates a, um, some kind of a sanctuary away from the city that you're, you know, you're taking your journey to Pendry wanted to lean to lean into and embrace the place that you were in. Mm. So, you know, when we did the Pendry, we asked ourselves, what is Baltimore? What is it? What does it mean to be in Baltimore so that somebody coming, you know, off a plane from wherever else could, could do a two night immersion into this hotel and come away having a dis, you know, distinct impression of exactly what Baltimore is. And so we looked at it, like we said, all right, well, what is Baltimore? Well, Baltimore is an industrial city that made its money from shipping and trade and grit, but it made money. So, you know, it also had its luxuries. So if you, if the, if you take the confluence of that gritty industry and you layer over the, uh, the luxury lifestyle into it, that's the Pendry and that's Baltimore. Yeah, I remember when we set out to build that project, I remember, uh, you know, the line that we constantly use, let's make sure it's world-class. Let's yeah. create something that's world-class. Uh, Kevin Plank said the same thing, had the same thoughts. You had the same thoughts, so did I. And uh, that's what we drove towards. And I remember when we won that award for Condé Nast Reader's Choice, uh, number one hotel in the United States, I was thinking to myself, you know, I actually felt, you know, I don't feel that way a lot of times. I felt like we really nailed it as far as uh, achieving the goal of, of, of creating something that was beyond anybody's expectations for Baltimore. So, uh, yeah, I give you a huge amount of credit for that. And, and changing gears a little bit, and we're going we're gonna to come back to the process a little bit because I think it's important to talk about, but changing gears a little bit, you know, you're doing some really amazing work uh, in regards to mental health and awareness, um, something that's really important, especially today. Um, there's, you know, there's not a person on the planet who's not affected by it. Um, you're involved with the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Baltimore. Uh, you recently uh, hosted uh, an event. We saw a couple different interviews featuring you in this effort. Can you talk a little more about, you know, your work with mental health and your willingness to speak out and raise awareness on this? Yeah, sure. So, so this is a cause that's very near and dear to me. Um, so I mentioned earlier, you know, um, my mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And if you know anything, if you don't know anything about mental illness, it's kind of an insidious disease because um, if you're afflicted by it, you have moments of lucidity and clarity followed by paranoid delusion. 
Um, so as a little boy, what that means to a little boy is um, you have no stability. Like you, people look, children look to their parents as role models. So that, like for me, um, my father uh, was, you know, heartbroken by her, his wife's illness. So he, he dived into his work. So I never really saw him. He just traveled all the time. And sometimes he took us with us. Most time he did. But for me, it, in order to survive and get through it, um, not having a role model of what normal looks like, I had to become the student of everybody else, right? So I became fastly fascinated by watching other people to learn what normal behavior looked like. And interestingly, what that did by overcoming that adversity, it actually made me incredibly talented at um, learning people's nonverbal you know, communication. And it taught me empathy. So by necessity, I became an avid listener and observer of other people. So when I sit down with clients now, I can see what they're not saying and understand intuitively what they want. Yes. And, and I would agree with that. Since the moment I met you, I felt the same way about how, how you interpreted the room, how you interpreted what was going on. And, um, you know, you were able to create bridges and, and cut to the chase on certain issues and subject matter that n nobody else could do. And so that the, you turned much of that tragedy and difficulty into, I would say, a positive in your personality going forward. But it still lives with you every day. It does. And I, I will say this. Um, I was not aware of that. Like I had serious anger and like I had as a, as a child, I was like the, the kid that sat in, sat in the lunchroom by himself, afraid to have people over because, because I didn't know what I was going to come home to. So I had like no play dates, things like that. And it was wow. debilitating. And I, like I had zero self-esteem until, you know, teachers took me under their wing. Right. Um, it wasn't until, you know, probably into like early late thirties, early forties, actually early forties that I started getting therapy. Um, and it was, you know, earlier I, you know, I was kind of angry. Everything had to be perfect all the time. Um, I didn't really talk about the fact that my mother was mentally ill because it, it felt like weakness. Yeah. Um, but then as I went through, you know, several years of intensive therapy to learn, you know, it's look, it's like Indiana Jones, right? You're like putting on, you know, your, your helmet, putting strapping that rope over your shoulder and going down into that, that dark cave and confronting your fears. I did that. And, um, it was incredibly liberating. And, and the, the thing that came out of that was that I saw something that I thought was a weakness and learned that it was a power. And, gave, and it was a, an incredibly liberating, powerful thing. And I just, it was like literally taking a bag of rocks off of my shoulder and putting it down for the first time in four decades. Wow. Um, and so if, if somebody, anybody in the 1970s had come up to me and explained that mental illness is normal and yet one in five people suffer from it in some way, that would have, that would have been incredibly liberating. Would have gone a long way. Could've and hey, here's way. somebody you could talk to who can yeah. help you work through this. Yeah. But that didn't really exist back it then. It didn't. And so, like, to me, if I can share my story and and take that bag of rocks off of several other people's shoulder, like, why wouldn't I do that? So, Patrick, this is, this is amazing and really inspirational. And um, so how do, you, how do you transition from trying to figure out what's going on with yourself 
intense therapy in your 30s into your 40s to decide and then transitioning into deciding how you're going to help other people. Where does that switch? When does that start and how? Well, I think that it wasn't conscious. Um, you know, I think there was a maybe a seminal moment when when I was interviewed by um, one of the Baltimore's magazines about like, you know, deep dive into like who's Patrick Sutton, what's he about? And I just like, it just came naturally in the interview. I just started opening up about it and just sort of, look, you know, the other thing too um, that I do is that I couldn't heal my mother. So I'm trying to heal everybody else. I'm playing, play, you know, I didn't realize I was doing this, but I am creating sanctuaries for other people to be well and happy because mm -hmm. um, I couldn't do it for her. So I think that, I opened up about that in a magazine article, NAMI read it and reached out to me um, and asked me if I would be interested in partnering with them. And I'm like, of course I would. NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Correct. That's right. So that's how, that's how I got involved. Yeah. And then you, and that's kind of transitioned into being a spokesperson for some of these issues. And I think, uh, like you said, there's a, there's still a stigma around some of this and I think it's unnecessary and I think it's unwarranted. And I think that the more people talk about it, you know, and actually I, it's great now because I hear pro athletes talking about it in yep. a locker room yep. or you hear, you know, actors talking about it. So it's become okay to have, you know, things that you need to work on big and small. And I think that that's helped probably a lot of people around the United States. I, I liken it, I create this visualization. That's what I do, right? So, so think of yourself trapped in a room. And what NAMI does is it, it, it opens the door. And you can see that there's a path. You're not alone. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's incredible work. And uh, I couldn't be more proud to be associated with it and you. And I hope we can continue to be helpful in the future on it. Yeah, it's really powerful. And to the extent that we can help you spread that message, uh, we'd love to help you with that. That's that, pretty awesome. That would be wonderful. So, um, you know, as, as we pivot to, you know, more of the built environments, um, you know, you know, Mark and, and you and, and the Weller development team and Kevin Plank and Scott Plank all worked on the Sagamore Pendry together. We talked a little bit about that. Hold on. I think we're going to need like a group hug here after that. <laughs> yeah. That was really yeah. heavy. Like yeah. it's hard to switch back, yeah. but yes, uh, we're going to try and switch back here to something sure. a little more, a little more pressing, but, but I mean, that's, that's really heavy stuff. And I really, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think just if one person or a hundred people hear this, it, it, it starts to address uh, what you were, what you were talking about earlier. So thank you very much for sharing yeah. That. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's not that heavy. It doesn't have to be. That's right. But you know? it was heavy for you coming up. Oh, 100%. And it was, and, and, and you and I have been really close friends for so long and I admire you so much for so many reasons. And I think that, um, you know, to me, it's just, it's, it's incredible that you share this because not a lot of people would quite frankly, yeah. they feel too either embarrassed or vulnerable and there's no reason to feel that way. So I, I give you credit. So, all right, let's pivot into fun stuff, right? <laughs> that's, that's even easier, which is what we do, you know, for a living. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like talking about the built environments and, you know, we were talking about this a little earlier, uh, what you've envisioned and brought to life. And it starts with a story. And, and as I said, like, I'd love to tell you, um, you know, that I understood you when I first met you, but I didn't until I worked with you on a couple projects and starting to understand what we start with, which is a project narrative mm -hmm. and the project narrative start there. And then let's take it through finishing a building and finishing, you know, starting with the vision and the narrative and, and finishing all the way through to the building. So tell us the process. What's it like? Well, th the best thing to do, um, you know, we do both commercial and we do high end residential, right? So, so they're a little bit different. Um, so on the, um, hospitality side, for example, I think what's really important first is understanding the story that you're trying to tell. And that comes from two things. So like what is the aspirational goal of the project and what is 
the energy of the location that you're building in. And it's the confluence of those two things that really sort of drive. And, a and there's one other piece of that, the budget. What's that? Exactly. <laughs> That's perfect. But, but yes, you can tell where you can That's tell where the rubber meets the road with Patrick and I. But yes, you are correct. And and I will say this: like two two visionaries that I know of who I've I've worked closely with him, uh, you know, um, is uh, Ken Plank, originally to do the the hotel, and his vision was really incredible, trying to deliver it, and you and you were able to deliver on what he was thinking and how he was thinking about. It. And then and uh, Alex Smith is another visionary in Baltimore and around the country, and you've managed to help him through his hospitality um, growth in his company, which has been, you know, really experience and design first, you know, and, and the food and everything falls into place after that. He's, he's done such a good job with every detail and you've been a huge part of that as well on across the country. So yeah. it starts with, it starts with the narrative and it starts with the, you know, continue on please. Yeah. So, so, well, and Alex and I have become, I mean, it's like we finish each other's sentences now. I'm at, I have nine projects with him currently wow. right now. Yeah. It's insane. He's a, he's an incredible entrepreneur, isn't he? He's he just well, yeah. he just cares. Yeah. Um, you know, he's passionate. Um, you know, anybody that's passionate that is going to invest in our city, you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to get behind that. Right? And he he was actually on one of our recent podcasts, so if uh, the listeners haven't checked that one out, go back and listen to that a couple uh, podcasts ago. Yeah. And for a guy as accomplished as he is, he's so down to earth. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, and I just had lunch at his restaurant. So. Yeah. <laughs> Big plugs for Alex. So anyway, so we, we were doing projects with him. We're doing, we did our projects with, with, um, with Kevin. And, you know, these are all guys that are just investing in our city. And uh, like I said, I'll, I'll always get behind that. So tell us the process. So you continue. So it starts with a story. It starts with a narrative. And then right. what? Right. So, so um, you know, everything that we do ties back to that narrative. So you think about a project you know, like think you think about a project the same way you think about like the way a sculptor would go about carving a block of stone, right? So you start off with an idea in this case, you know, it would be some kind of a narrative and you start chopping out, shaping it out in its rough form. And then you keep refining detail after detail after detail. So like on a hotel, you're going to start from the massive plan, right? Like, like how these rooms lay themselves out, where, where are the main rooms are going to go you keep refining it down to like, you know, how does this piece of trim meet the edge of this sofa, <laughs> right? It, and it's everything in between. All those decisions, every single one of them tie back to the story. It has to tie to the narrative. And what's interesting about that is it's actually when you create the narrative, it makes the process so much easier. You are, you, after doing this many times on projects, large and small with you, I would 100% agree. Yeah. It is a guiding document and it is a, it is a, it is a road with guardrails that if you stay on it, you, you never go too far off track. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll say, I'll say two things about it. One is there is an inherent authenticity to the design that comes out of that stuff. I can't tell you how many designers like tear pictures out of magazines and you walk through one of the space, you know, one of their buildings, it's like, well, that room looks like it came out of Architectural Digest 2015. You know, that room looks like it came out of, you know, Veranda Magazine 2017 because those were cool. But what is it? What's it? What's the experience like for the people when you actually create a, uh, a narrative and everything you do ties back to it? You're creating a unique product specifically. It's bespoke. It is, it's like having a custom-made suit for yourself. Mm -hmm. So every detail goes to that. The other thing that, that I want to share is that, you know, the landscape architect on the Pendry Hotel came up to me after. He says, this was the most profitable project I, I've ever worked on. I'm like, well, why is that? He goes, because we never had to change anything. 
because they were constant, like the, the lyrics to the thing were all there in front of him. And you were able to tap into that narrative. And so when you do it, it just becomes a very, very simple thing. It's hard to explain to many people, but... It, it makes total sense when you do explain it. One question for people who may be interested in trying to follow in those footsteps. Like, what does that look like? What does that narrative look like? Is that words in a Word document? Is it a, is it a slide deck? Is it a, you know, a, a PDF with beautiful pictures? What, what's it, what is the narrative? What form does it take? Yeah, uh, see all of the above. Yeah. Right? So, so, so we do... Um, so it starts with ideas, um, which are discussed verbally and then it is you know it is supported by visuals that support these words right so like you know often with my residential clients you know you can tell me that you want something traditional if i put that question if i say paint a picture of what traditional means to 10 different people i'll get 10 different responses right so you have to support that with visual support so pictures of things that you've done or, or places mm -hmm. that you've been to or whatever it might be um, so I think that's that's hugely important. That's great. So so and I've seen you do it. Like I said, we've worked on Port Covington was a great example. That is an annex to a city, forty five city blocks, and you helped develop the project narrative. Yeah. Um, for that, that still stands today and yeah. is still used um, on a regular basis. It was used for the entire first phase, which is delivering uh, in only if, only about five or six months. And uh, I saw how you worked there. And then you dialed into certain areas strategically into certain areas that required more attention and more focus because they would be more prominently used by the public and so on. But so I've seen you do it on that, and I've seen you do it all the way down to a home or a smaller project. Uh, we did it in Georgetown, Wisconsin and M. I remember you coming in and helping there and, and creating something great with uh, the great architect, Anki Barnes. But um, so you do that, and then how do, you, how, do you, how, does, how do you turn that into reality? Like how does that then turn into plans and then turn into a, you know, a, a project that works on budget and on schedule. And how do you stay in touch with the process and, and what does that look like at the end? Well, two things, one, you know, being a good listener, right? So, so, you know, budget is budget. I mean, it's just, you know, so like I need a bed, I need the bed to be X amount of dollars. They're the same thing, right? So all of those things go into the, you know, the stew, right? They're all ingredients in the stew and, and you, you treat them equally, right? So yeah, sure. You want an aspirational design, but you have a budget. So you, you know, you make decisions, you know, I can spend here and maybe I, I don't have to spend over here. And um, so you're just intelligently walk through all that stuff. And it's, it's a process. And that the old adage, it's, you know, one part inspiration, nine parts perspiration is a hundred percent true. So we, you know, we have a deep bench in our office of people that are interior architects that, you know, have great ff &E experience, but you know, people that are great project managers, you employ all of it. Um, and you just keep chopping wood until you get there. Yeah, and, and I remember working with you on that part that we were just going to talk about, the integrity of the design. Um, you were always um, keeping an eye on the integrity for design. And as long as you have great construction managers and development managers who are doing the same thing and you can meet in the middle, once in a while you can find a product that's darn close to what was originally intended that keeps the integrity of the design and keeps it intact. And then I think the other thing you brought up, which is the most important um, out of that as well, is prioritizing places and experiences of what your, what your, your eyes will see and what you will actually experience uh, and making sure that maybe there's a corner far, far away that we're going to, 
um, you know, some or another value engineer a, a little differently and spend a little more on the front entryway and some th- things. And I know that sounds very simple and cliche. Uh, you know, we're going to value engineer the things that don't matter, but it gets very difficult when you're building world-class projects that require the utmost attention and require uh, to be great everywhere because every detail matters, right? And I think that I found with you is that you were willing to work with work with us and find um, substitutes uh, that were darn close to keep that integrity there. Well, I think too, it's also a value play, right? So, so it, everything doesn't have to be gold plated, you know, or solid gold. Although I think we painted something gold one time, yeah, real we, gold. <laughs> Is that true? Did we? Yeah, I think some walls at the pantry are real gold. Oh, gold leaf. Yes, there yes. was real gold in there. I remember it was very yeah. expensive paint. In the ballroom. Uh, the that's ballroom. actually gold leaf. Yeah, that's yes. that's the old school style of putting that in. Yes, yes. that is in the ballroom. So let's, yeah, let's, yeah we, we did use gold ones. And, yes. and, any other examples uh, of that that you guys worked on together that are kind of funny stories about things you wanted and then you had to make sacrifices well, for budget? Well, actually, and, I was going to go the other way on this because one of the things I've learned um, both with Mark, working with Mark, first of all, you have to remember this is a team effort, right? It's a team sport. So it's not just me with my vision. It's what are the skill sets that, you know, Mark and his development team bring the landscape architect. They, everybody has a place at the table and, and valuable insight. So I remember one time, Mark, you'll probably remember this. Um, when I was, when we were trying to like look to shave budget on the Pendry hotel and I was like, you know, we can save $300,000 if we don't do these balconies on the ground floor. And Mark looked at me and said, yeah, but we can sell those rooms for more money. And, you were right. Yep. So that money, you know, I'm looking at like trying to like save dollars. And Your balconies are actually worth $600,000 to add. So to spend the 300000 was, but you're exactly right. I think it's it's a team effort. Right. And I think that, um, I think that the neat thing about working with you as well, I think if you're a, a typical developers in many cases really are numbers and spreadsheets guys but i think we are a construction minded uh, and execution developer because of my my experience in the field for over 15 years working on large and small projects and because of that i think it lends uh special focus and attention to create a better product because it's not a spreadsheet to us it's an actual vision it's an actual product and so um absolutely and so finding that balance but anyways yeah no that's that's been incredible and a great part to work on so so you, you get to the point and you agree on the parts and pieces and now we're trying to see the project to, to opening we're trying to see the project all the way through so how does that work for you how are you part of that process as well well i mean you go through your construction document phase right so yep. so everything gets very detailed we're a detail as you know very detail oriented company um because how everything fits together is incredibly important it's pretty much drawings for everything down to where the the bolts and screws go 100 percent. and all of your 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 you know drawings for the various uh, trim details and the flooring assemblies and bar details and under lighting and under counter lighting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And sometimes you can't communicate that in a two dimensional drawing. So I'm, you know, known for doing like three dimensional hand sketches of how like X meets Y and gets put together kind of a thing. Cause I, I'm more about the communication than like standing on ceremony. Yeah. The other thing that's really important is, you know, being out there on the job because yeah. you know, you, you, the rubber, hit, you know, meets the road there. Right. So get being out on the job site, um, you know, being able to, to make adjustments on the fly that better the project. I can attest to that because I can attest to calls from both you and the construction team saying, Patrick's out here and he's saying we need to move this. Or, <laughs> or, or you're saying, hey, these guys don't seem to understand. There's a, there's a problem. The lights are off center when you put the chairs in and you, whatever it was. They could be small or big details. But yeah. yes, you're right. Those visits were really important. And I think they saved a lot of headache uh, in the long run. It moves things along more smoothly. And it also, it, you also, you know, you want to, 
you have opportunities that you see there. I mean, like you can you can have an imagine a great imagination and you can do a perfect set of drawings, but still there's going to be an opportunity that shows up, especially in a massive renovation project like we had. Sure, sure. No, that's great. And uh, you know, one thing we, we've talked a lot about the Sagamore Pendry, and it's a beautiful property. Um, talk to us a little bit about one or two of your other favorite projects that you've worked on. Not necessarily, you know, the most famous, but just what you enjoyed about it. Well. That's a tough one, um, but I will say there's a few um, projects that that had an impact on me. Um, one is gone now. One uh, we did a restaurant in Baltimore called Pazzo, um, and actually we were just talking about that earlier today. Um, Pazzo was great because uh, it was the first time people felt like they were willing to dress up to go out in Baltimore City, mm. and um, you know people were prideful of like like a space downtown and knowing that I could bring that joy and sense of pride. So cool. Was something that, you know, was incredibly uplifting spiritually for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it just made me want to do more things, like more things. Right. Um, just seeing people like that. It would be like the, this was, I don't know, it was like 2002 or something. I don't remember when it was. And so Where, that would, that was for more, you know, not for its design intent, but more for the impact that it had. Yeah. Well, both. Right. Yeah. So, so pe people would bring, whenever they had friends from out of town come in, they would bring them there because they, that was the sort of symbol to them of like, look how cool the city I live in is. Right. right? Yeah. So that was kind of a big one for me. It's kind right. of sad that it's not there anymore, but you know, the memory is. So that was, that was kind of a great one. And then, you know, look, I, I do a lot of houses for people. Um, I did a house for uh, this couple uh, a number of years ago and she was just exasperated, right? Like, cause, because she kept, she'd gone through designer and architect after designer and architect. And I had her come into my conference room and I said, tell me about yourself. And her, her whole face lit up. No one had asked her about her her life, her person, her whatever. And, you know, it, it sort of, so she talked for an hour about her children and growing up and like raising them and now they're gone and what, what they're doing and like how she's transitioning her life to something being more spiritual, more simplistic. And because that's what we do, right? We're like that's what my firm does. We, we ask questions. I want to know who you are. And it's interesting because no decision about what swatch of fabric or what floor plan would be relevant if you don't ask those questions. And that's why she had was frustrated. And we finished the project for her and she just gave me the biggest hug after. And she's like, you know, this is amazing. And then she came to my book signing. Um, I introduced my oldest son to her at the book signing and he, uh, she looked at him and said, you know, your, your dad's um, changed my life. And that's like, that's it's just, incredible. It's just incredible. Yeah. So and like, and like if you ever like, you know, you know, one day bitching about clients or like bitching about how hard the project is, you just remember those moments, like what yeah. you're able to do. And it just, yeah. Yeah, it's like, all right, yeah, that's right. That's why we do this. That's yeah, amazing. no doubt. And, you know, talking a little bit more about some of the process that you go through and you've gone through, you know, we, we recently did a trip uh, to the Bahamas mm -hmm. and we went island hopping yep. with uh, six or seven different people. Maybe there was nine in total, including myself. You were there. We hit five or six spots, completely unique and individual spots. We, we were, we were on a small plane and we'd go up and down and we'd hit the, we'd hit the spot and then spend the night there or whatever. 
you know, I watched how you worked and I watched how you, what you created for us to start putting a vision together for our, for our Bahamas project, for our Grand Bahama project. And I started to understand just the importance of travel and the importance of seeing and experiencing and making sure that we were on the same page and speaking the same language and we understood what each other was talking about. And you were inspired by certain things and you were, you were definitely turned off by other things, I noticed. Um, and so as, as we think about that, how does that kind of play into the big picture of your, of your design process, travel and experience with the clients, whether it's travel, the clients, by the way, I just saw, we can get into this thing. I just saw the coolest trip ever that you did <laughs> to the, to the, uh, was it, what, what's the, so it was the marble quarries in Carrara. Yeah. That was the coolest trip ever. If you're not following Patrick Sutton on Instagram or on one of his channels, you should, because this trip, uh, to the, uh, to the Carrara, uh, what do they call it? It's actually mine. Is it a quarry? No, it's a, their quarry. It's actually in that quarry was where Michelangelo used, got, you I've know, never seen anything like it. The slabs that they pulled out and the, the crane. They, 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 yeah. They, they, they pull out blocks that are yes. about the size of an SUV and then they take it to the factories, which are down, you know, so, so the quarries are in the mountains. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is like in Tuscany. Right. So yeah. they, they take the blocks out of the mountain. They truck them down to right next to the, you know, the port, which is down below. Yeah. They cut them into slabs, polish them. Um, and then they put them, uh, you know, out on the, on these ships for export. And so I was there with, um, one of the most gracious clients I can possibly imagine, you know, just like, Hey, I'm Italian. I want to lean into my Italian heritage. You know, what can we do with this house? I'm like, how about if we go to Italy and we actually go to the quarry where the marble is going to go to be inside your house. It's like, let's go. Um, so we did it and it was just, it was incredible. And, you know, we went, we did two days in Florence shopping for, um, you know, for furniture for his house and, and fabrics. Uh, we did two days. Uh, we stayed in the town right next to Carrara called Forte de Marmi, which is beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's like the Palm beach of, of the marble coast. I'm sure. Um, and then we went to Milan to do some more shopping there. Um, and look, tr travel is an incredible thing, right? Like, what yeah, that, that's where I was going is, and that, uh, that story is incredible. I didn't mean to sidetrack you there, but yeah. I, I was looking at it on Instagram this weekend and I was thinking how, how cool that was. But yeah, tell us about, you've told me before, this is, I think is interesting. You told me before. I have to travel. I was like, Patrick, we have deadlines. You're like, well, if I don't travel, I don't have ideas. Right. So I'm going out of town for two weeks. Now it wasn't really like that, but kind of like that. I mean, you you prioritize travel um, with that travel, both with clients and without with with your beautiful wife, and and you do all kinds of neat things like that. Tell tell us about that. Sure. So so we have a couple of sayings in my office um, that I like to use. Well, one of, one of which is, "How big is your snow globe?" Right, because there are so many designers that have this like their world is this is inside the snow globe, and they you know, that's it. So like for me, I want to have a big toolbox of skill sets, right? So in order to have that, you need you know, there's a big world out there. You need to engage into it. And one of the things that I love about travel is um, it takes you outside your comfort zone, so it forces you to be a little uncomfortable, and that. Like lack of comfort keeps you on edge. It keeps you, you know, sharp and relevant. And then you like, you see things. Look, when I was doing a restaurant in um, Baltimore called Chingali, um, I was walking through Milan and I went to this, um, you know, the, the Galleria, which is this incredible. Yeah. And, yeah. You've been, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and I walked into the Prada shop and I saw these curved glass vitrines in there. I'm like, oh, that's our entrance. I'm so stealing that. And yeah, I stole it. And <laughs> uh, now I reinvented it. But so you see things, you get inspired and then you like you, that you pack it away and like, you know, the, we'll be, we'll be in the conference room. We're talking about a solution to something. I'm like, 
wait, wait a minute. I have it. I have it. I have it. I can't place where it was. And I'll start like flipping through my phone of pictures. I'm like, that's it. Wow. You know, that when we were in, you know, Uruguay on this beachside restaurant that like had blankets on the back of the chairs because it gets chilly at night. Like, you know, what, what is that experience like? So, um, that's, that's the other thing is, is like when you think about what you're doing as a, a designer, it's not always just design, you're crafting experiences, memorable experiences for people. And, and that, and travel helps you with that. No doubt. So one last question for you. You know, I'd love to hear, like, in your mind, what is the future design? Where, where is the industry headed, and how, what does it look like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Any major differences, any major changes? What do you, what do you see coming? Yeah, so, so, so people often ask me about trends, and I just, like, I just kind of give them the blank face because I, I don't subscribe to trends. You don't do trends. I, well, it's just, I don't even know what it means, <laughs> right? Like, so, so, like, to me, I think what there is is more of a zeitgeist. Like, what are people searching for? like spiritually. And I do think that what I find is that, um, and I have found this over the last number of years, is that people are becoming more attuned to their mortality and they realize that, you know, hey, I've got X amount of time on this planet, so I'm much more interested in the quality of experiences that I'm going to have than like, you know, the expression of my wealth with this giant mansion or something like that. Absolutely. So I think, I think that what you'll see um, and you, you have seen is people crafting experiences through design. It's not just, you know, what is the space I'm making, but how does it support great memories? You know, like, and you see it in like the hospitality world. Like, you know, you go on the website for like a great hotel now and it's like, there's a line there called experiences, mm -hmm. right? So, so it's like, you know, you can do a cooking class, you can go to the, you know, the farmer's market with somebody and then cook afterwards or whatever it is. So I think that's something that you see design as being a support to that spiritual, um, spiritualness. And then I think too, people are interested in quality, you know, not just size, but quality. Yeah. I would agree with everything you said and you're spot on and that will probably never change. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer and, and really fascinating, interesting, uh, insightful conversation. And I really want to thank you, Patrick, for opening up about your story and your home life and everything. I think, uh, you know, that it's, as we you know talked about earlier, you mentioned one in five people, uh, suffer from some sort of mental illness. And I think uh, as Mark said, there's not one of us in this world who isn't affected by it in some way. So, uh, I thank you for your courage to talk about it publicly and to share that with us today. And this was really awesome conversation. Yeah. Well, and again, thanks for making uh, Baltimore and the projects I've worked on far better. Thanks for uh, helping us with everything you've helped us with over the year and years and, uh, look forward to the next 10. Yeah, man. Well, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. This was really uh, a great episode. We covered some off awesome topics with uh, Patrick Sutton, who's just incredible at just about everything he visions and creates. Um, so make with the biggest snow globe. Yeah, the man with the biggest. <laughs> he snow officially globe. that right. he is now. I mean, I'm actually changing his name in I, the in my phone to Mister Giant Snow Globe. Yeah, I have to go get a bigger snow globe too. So yeah. thanks, thanks for that inspiration as well. So. Uh, make sure you follow us on social media at Weller Development on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Matt Rienzo. He's Mark Weller. Keep building, people.